Yesterday, Pastor Mike McClure and other representatives from Calvary Chapel of San Jose stood before a Santa Clara court and were found in contempt for continuing to hold church services during the COVID-19 pandemic. The judge ordered they pay $55,000 as a result. The church, on top of that, faces county fines as high as $700,000 for keeping their doors open. Now, as Christians these days, if you're like me, and guessing a lot of you are, we're watching a lot of these court cases with interest, right? See things happening in different states and at different levels of the judicial system, and we're watching with a lot of interest. Unfortunately, throughout 2020, the trend has been clear that the powers that be don't have much of an interest in making sure Christians are actually able to gather before God week after week. Even when it seems like the courts have sort of ruled in favor of churches or synagogues, thus far it hasn't been any sort of great sweeping victory uh, by no means. Instead, what has happened is a few courts have simply ruled that churches should just be held to the same restrictive standard as any restaurant, ret uh, retailer, or secular business. Uh, it's interesting. Now, we know that our historic experience of religious freedom in our country is really the exception, not the norm for most Christians in most places throughout the last few thousand years of church history. And we're very thankful for that. It's been a wonderful privilege that we enjoy. Yet reading the Bible, seeing the power of God wielded on behalf of his people on page after page, and hearing how the Lord talks about mountains moving by faith and how no foe can stand against us, we might expect that believers would be able to chalk up a victory in every single battle that they face. But the truth is not every story of oppression ends with the parting of the Red Sea not in the Bible, and not in history. Though that is true, we need not lose hope, of course. As we learned this past Sunday in our study of Psalm 146, good is most definitely going to win. You can bet on it. We look forward to a future victory, an ultimate victory, one that is complete in every way, where all injustices will be righted, all injuries will be mended where all insufficiencies will be made whole. But today, on this side of the kingdom, we walk in the midst of trouble. And some of those troubles are simply not going to be immediately removed or overcome, no matter how great the faith of a Christian or a church or anything like that. But when we face opposition, and it seems from our perspective like the opponents are winning, it still surprises us. Even reading through a book like Acts, we find surprises like this, things that are a little bit shocking when we step back and think about what's really going on. If you were reading through the book of Acts for the very first time, and if you were tallying a score on a piece of paper next to your Bible, you'd notice that, yes, sometimes, oftentimes, scary things happen to God's people, but thus far, usually, the Christians come through the adversity. They come out of the dungeons. They are taken out of their chains. There have been some exceptions along the way for sure, men like Stephen and James, the brother of John, who lost their lives to persecution. But as we look through the uh, other stories, Peter and Paul, we see uh, a lot of victories being tallied. And we think of Paul, 
The man of steel, right? I mean, if there was ever a man of steel, it's this guy. You arrest him, the whole earth shakes and opens up his prison cell. You stone him to death, he just comes back to life. You shipwreck him three times, he bobs in the sea until he's pulled out. When we left off last time, a violent mob had seized the Apostle Paul after he was accused of something that he would never do. He absolutely didn't do it. There was no evidence that he did it. He never would do it. But he seized anyway, assumed guilty. Now, tonight we're going to see what happens next in the story. But many of you are familiar with this passage. And you know that this attack and arrest that we're going to look at do not end in Paul's exoneration or even escape. He's escaped many other trials. He's made it through many other oppositions. He has come out not unscathed, but, you know, uh, when they try to kill him in one city, they lower him through a basket and he escapes. When they try to kill him in another city, uh, you know, the dungeon throws him out and there's revival. And when they do kill him in another city, God raises him from the dead. And you guys know, many of you, that this passage is going to end this way. He's going to stay arrested through the end of the book. In the meantime, he'll be wrongfully imprisoned, targeted for assassination, shipwrecked, not on by a a viper for a while. So where is God when Christians take such heavy blows? And how might we stay on our feet to fight another round if we're taking hits like that? Those are some of the questions before us in our passage this evening. We're going to begin in verse 31. As they, the mob, were trying to kill him, Paul, Word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. On the whole, if we're keeping score, it's going to feel like the good guys are losing points here. As we've, been, uh, as we've covered before, some commentators are very passionate in their opinion that Paul, they think, was outside the will of God throughout this entire period. And we've talked about why we don't see it that way, even a little bit. But let's even say, even if he was, which we don't think he was, but even if he was... This is an important reminder. God does not base his love for you or his work in your life on performance, right? God doesn't stop loving you or stop offering his grace for your life or stop offering you wisdom or stop offering you his promises because you make a mistake. And praise God for that because none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes daily on all sorts of different levels. And so, you know, even if you are of the opinion that, well, Paul is kind of making a big life mistake here, I don't think he is. But even if he was, it's of little consequence because God's love is unconditional and undying towards his people. But no matter why Paul found himself in that situation that day, here he was. And the Lord was with him. Now, Paul's going to be savagely beaten then wrongfully arrested, and he's going to stay that way for years. Knowing that there's a long haul of persecution ahead in this story, I am so thankful and encouraged to see that there are marvelous notes of providence in our verses tonight. We see at least two here. First of all, it says, as they were trying to kill him. Now, the temple complex was full to the brim. It was a feast time. Um, some scholars feel that you know, the, the population of Jerusalem swelled to three times capacity uh, during these times, tons and tons of people. And so it's swollen, especially the temple con- complex. And Paul's just one man. And he's not a black belt in judo or karate or Krav Maga, as far as I can tell. And no one is defending him. He's got no secret service. He's got no body armor on. 
You know, it's not that hard to kill someone in a situation like this. And I know that because people kill other people on Black Friday without even meaning to, right? That doesn't happen anymore. Back before COVID existed, kids, there's a thing called Black Friday. And people would go to a store and, and trample people to death for a television, right? But that, that would happen almost every Black Friday. Somewhere, someone lost their life because they got ran over by people. Now, try to imagine a huge, highly motivated, super angry group of people who've decided we want to kill this guy and we're going to use our bare hands to do it. There's an example in 2 Kings chapter 7. The people of Samaria had been besieged. They were starving in the city, really bad situation. Everybody's at the very brink of starvation, right? God brings deliverance to the city. And then when those weak and weary townsfolk rush out of their city into the enemy camp for food, they crush and kill the, the captain of the king's guard. He's in armor. He's, you know, this guy and everything provided for probably better than these frail townsfolk. And, and he dies, right? So why was it that a highly motivated, enraged mob of killers could beat Paul but were unable to kill him? Well, I have to call it providence. Second, we see word went to the commander. How did that happen? We remember they had strategically shut the gates of the temple, but God found a way. God's got telegraph machines in heaven that we don't know anything about. He provided a messenger to go and deliver the necessary news to bring the soldiers in. We don't know exactly how he did it, but he did. And what a great moment of providence. Now, why not send an angel? Why not just open the ground and swallow up these blasphemers whole? I don't know, that would have been an easy way for God to deal with the situation and pr protect his apostle. Uh, but that's not the Lord's plan. We do know, because we know the rest of the story and we know the prophecies that Paul had been given earlier, we know that God's desire was to put Paul before governors and kings to inspire him to write more epistles, to use him as a missionary among many Roman military men. And so this seems to be the method by which God started accomplishing that work. Verse 32, taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Historians believe this officer would have been in command of a thousand Roman soldiers. The wording here gives us the impression that he mustered at least 200 of them to go with him into the riot at the temple. We can't be sure, but it says centurions, plural. So it seems uh, at minimum, there are two centurions and their complement of soldiers. So 200 guys, uh, pretty big force. We've been seeing, you know, especially through the summer, we, we saw playing out in front of us on television and media and those sorts of things, images and video of, of, of riots and police forces meeting together with unruly mobs and those sorts of things. It's a scary situation. And this would have been uh, just full of tension and, and uh, just would have been crazy. Now, despite the bedlam and the barriers and everything that was going on, despite that there were just tons of people jam-packed into the temple complex, the police response time was incredible. In fact, I'd say it was providential. Years ago, um, our house was being robbed on a Sunday morning, and we, we happened to be at Calvary Tulare that morning, actually. Pastor John, who led us in worship, is from Calvary Chapel of Tulare. And uh, we happened to be there. I think I was leading worship there uh, that morning. And towards the end of the day, my, my alarm company called and asked 
if, you know, hey, your alarm's going off, do you want me to dispatch the police? And I said, yeah, I guess. And even though I thought no one's actually going to break into my house in broad daylight on the Lord's day. Uh, and so, but I said, yeah, what can it hurt? Send the policeman over. Uh, even if we were being robbed, and we had, been robbed, we had been robbed before, and so even if we were being robbed, I thought, well, by the time the police get there, it doesn't really matter, it's all over. That had been our experience pre- previously. And so I figured that you know, by the time they rolled out, it would be uh, too late. But as it turns out, there was an officer very nearby, and he arrived at our house while our uninvited guests were still doing their thing. And despite some property damage, no harm was done. And uh, those guys, uh, you know, had their day in court as well. Now, here you have a huge mob beating a man to death, a man who stubbornly just won't die. But the peace officers were able to get there right where they needed to in no time flat. Now, that's providence. In a situation like this, there's so much going on, so many barriers to entry, so much difficulty ascertaining what even is going on. Uh, And so providence, that the Lord made a way to save his servant. By the way, a scene like this highlights the fact that human beings need governance. Uh, Somehow this is being debated on some levels in our culture today. Uh, But we need police. We need laws and we need enforcement of those laws. That doesn't mean that every law is equal or every law is good, but human beings need to be governed. They need governance because we are wicked from birth. We have sin uh, just bound up into our DNA and left on our own. We do really bad things to one another and to the world around us. You know, uh, if you are grading the behavior of human beings, the first sin is they ate a piece of fruit. The second sin is they murdered a guy. Whoa, man, that escalated quick, right? But, you know, we see this and we see that human beings need governance. And we are very thankful for those who put themselves in harm's way day by day to protect and serve and keep the peace. Verse 33, then the commander approached, took Paul into custody and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Now, wait a minute. The guy being beaten without mercy, that's the guy you arrest? Now, while we appreciate and are indebted to the justice system around us, and we really do love all of our first responders and military personnel uh, and the sacrifices that they make day by day to keep our society safe, at the same time, on a grander sort of philosophical level, we as Christians cannot expect the worldly order around us to always do what is uh, righteous, right? To always do what is fair and just. That, that's just the way of the world. This is important for us to keep in mind right now as we watch these court cases that have to do with churches being open and things like that. The God of this world, Satan, is our adversary and he perverts justice. In the end, he is most definitely going to be cast into the lake of fire. But for now, we as Christians, we do not hang our hopes on the decision of five people in the Supreme Court of the United States. We don't and we can't. That's gonna end in real big disappointment time and time again. Uh, If courts rule in our favor, great. But either way, we don't rejoice in the words of men or the systems of men. We rejoice in the promises of God. Because the promises of God are way grander and better and fuller than, hey, five people voted your way in this one case. 
that may or may not apply to the next situation down the line. God's plan, God's promises is that one day we will rule and reign with him in his perfect kingdom, that we will be in the spot of helping to judge and and oversee uh, his administration on the earth. Now, before we move on, notice this. Paul was bound with two chains. This is a fulfillment of the prophet Agabus's prophecy delivered in Caesarea back up in verse 11. Now, we notice it was a literal fulfillment. Agabus said he would be bound, and then he was bound. We have no reason to expect future prophecies that are given to us in the Bible. Lots and lots of prophecies in the Bible, still about 500 that we um, are waiting for their fulfillment. We have no reason to think that those prophecies, particularly in regard to the end times, will not be fulfilled in a literal, actual way. There are systems and groups that say, well, the future prophecies in the Bible are going to be uh, fulfilled in an allegorical way and in sort of a mystical way. We have no reason to think that. Now, a careful critic looking at this would say, ah, but we've got you. Agabus said the Jews will bind Paul and deliver him to the Gentiles. So what's the problem? Well, our answer is that it was the actions of the Jews which led to his binding, and it will be their charges against him in the Gentile court of law that would keep him bound for years. So what does this tell us? It tells us first that biblical prophecy is a literal business. When it says something is going to happen, that something does happen right? It doesn't happen mystically. It doesn't happen allegorically. It actually happens. Paul wasn't emotionally bound. He wasn't financially bound. He was bound bound and he was shackled. But as the fulfillment unfolded, there were elements that came into play that weren't specifically outlined or detailed by the prophet, right? So Agabus said, hey, you're going to be bound. It's going to happen as a result of Jewish um, uh, persecution towards you, right? Now, as it unfolded, that was true and that really happened. It also included this Roman contingent that wasn't specifically outlined at the moment of Agabus's prophecy. So when we as students of the Bible look at, say, end times prophecies, there are going to be gaps in our understanding. There are gonna be things that have not been detailed for us all the way. The, the character, the Antichrist, is one example. He's going to be a real person who really exists and really makes a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, who really sets up the abomination of desolation in the temple. But even though there are lots of specific prophecies about him and a lot of things that we know about him, there are a lot of things we don't know about him. And so if you read prophecy commentaries or books, you'll find that some people have lots of different opinions about his heritage. Some say he has to be a Jew. Some say he can't be a Jew. Some say he's gonna be an Assyrian. And it has to do with our interpretation of certain passages where we have gaps and we're just not exactly sure. And that's why we don't want to be dogmatic about the those sorts of areas where there are gaps, right? Because we don't always know every single piece of the prophetic puzzle. And so we see that God gives us an outline of future events. There are gaps in the coverage. We can't exactly see how every single element or every single event is going to fit together. That's okay. Gaps don't indicate that prophecy isn't meant to be taken literally. Bible prophecy, whenever it's fulfilled in the Bible, always happens literally and actually. Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. 
Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. Unsaved people really are held captive by the devil to do his will. Look at what we're seeing here. We had a wild, concentrated effort to murder this man. Countless numbers of people, countless numbers of these people had immediately involved themselves in that effort, right, to murder an innocent man. Uh, and then when asked what was going on, they don't even know what's happening. If that's not a picture of what sin does to a person, I don't know what is. You see a, a big multitude of people, this group of people who were going to the temple, why were they going there? They were going there to be faithful pilgrims to worship their God. They didn't wake up and say, I hope we can find some stranger I don't know and stomp him to death today, right? But these are people who are not believers and as the Bible describes them, they are held captive by the devil to do his will. And the devil pulled that string, as it were, and suddenly they are part of this horrifying incident of violence and injustice. And then when they stop, they say, hey, what are you doing? And people don't even know what's going on. There is a satanic conspiracy to resist God and his people and his work on the earth. And many unbelievers around us have no idea that they are a part of that. Uh, they, they're not all, you know, bowing down to some statue of Baphomet and, and giving them, you know, bloodletting to Satan and those sorts of things. But that doesn't mean that they're not still being used by the devil to accomplish his resisting work against the Lord. And so this is one reason why it does no good to become angry or spiteful towards the unbelieving world. We can have a righteous anger or frustration at injustice, but it does no good to you know, let unbelievers around you know that you're enemies with them because the truth is you're not their enemy. You're the first responder sent by God into the war zone of Hanford or Lemoore or wherever you're from to go and save those people from the clutches of Satan because they are trapped in his clutches. And yes, they are being used for his wicked work, but many of them have no idea that they are a part of that. Every now and then a movie will be made that focuses or touches on the topic of like child soldiers in African wars. That's something that happens in our world today, right? And we see in, in those kinds of movies how horrifying and wrong it is that, that people would do that to children and put guns in their hands and force them to go and engage in these, you know, guerrilla fights and those sorts of things. And we recognize as viewers, well, that little child soldier has done some heinous things, but what do we think? Do we think, well, we need to cut that kid down right where he stands? We think, well, that kid needs to be saved out of that life and redeemed and rehabilitated, right? We have a natural human compassion and think that. Now, that is how God wants us to see unbelievers all around us. We wanna develop the same softness towards every non-Christian around us. Because the truth is, every non-Christian around us is that little child in the eyes of God who God desperately wants to save at the same level that he wanted to save you and I. Now, I will ask this question when it comes to verse 34, where are the Christians? So far, there has been no one there to defend Paul, no one to help him, no one to try to tell the commander what's really going on, no prayer vigils for him. If we see injustice happening and we can make a stand for what is right, we are called to do so in love. It's true that the situation was chaotic, but Paul, as the story plays out, it seems he is completely alone when it comes to human kin, without support. If we see a brother or a sister in need, let's stand in support, offer assistance, 
cross the line to be by their side. Verse 35, when Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mass of people followed yelling, get rid of him. We've seen providence working its way through this scene, but we also see the devil fighting back. We see him rallying his forces here to get hold of Paul again. The shock and awe of hundreds of Roman soldiers armed to the teeth has completely worn off. And now this uh, unarmed citizen mob turns violent again. Uh, despite what that is going to mean for them. If they actually break out against this group of Roman soldiers, I mean, this, that's, that's Time Magazine carnage kind of stuff, right? That's the kind of stuff that historians say. And then this happened one day where these soldiers went in and killed a thousand people in the temple. And it was this horrible scene. Look at what the devil does to people. It's a full-blown just, just a horrible scene. But you see how the devil is just playing these people like pawns. He doesn't care if they get butchered down uh, by these Romans and the, the soldiers there, which they will be, have to do if this mob keeps pressing in on them. Devil doesn't care. He just wants widespread, widespread bloodshed. He just wants Paul brought down. He just wants God's work thwarted and he wants people to suffer as much as possible on the way. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? Let's hold there for a minute. In contrast to the satanic hatred on display, we're about to see some of Paul's famous love. For now, we notice a couple of things that were happening during this drama of injustice. First, Paul kept his spiritual wits about him. It must have been, uh, I mean, we can't, I can't imagine the immensity of the strain and the pain that he was feeling at the time, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he stayed in control and stayed in a position of trust in the Lord. And second, even though he's at a physical breaking point, even though he's being unfairly, unjustly arrested, fairly treated by this government official, Paul speaks graciously and he speaks respectfully. We do not have to agree with ungodly leaders, but we are called to treat them with grace and respect. That protocol, that spiritual calling is the same for Commander Lysias in this verse or High Priest Caiaphas or Caesar Nero or Governor Newsom, right? That's just the deal. That's just the deal. We don't have to agree with what they're doing, but we absolutely are called to the same level of behavior that we see being demonstrated here. Being wronged doesn't void our Christian code of conduct, and it doesn't make the fruit of the Spirit inapplicable anymore. But the bad people are just so bad. Yeah, for sure. I know it's true. But they're also dearly loved by God, whose desire is to save them just as much as it was to save us. Now, Paul had previously been a man completely consumed by hate, hate for outsiders, hate for dissenters, hate for those who didn't go his way. So how could a man like that overcome his propensity for hatred? Well, it was the transforming work of God in his heart. He explained in Romans chapter five that God poured out love into his heart through the Holy Spirit and that love was the source of his endurance, the source of his character, the source of his hope. It was that godly love that changed Paul from being a hate-filled killer to a man of compassion who could look at the very people who were killing him and say, I would love to tell them about how they could be saved from their sins. That's transformation. Nobody hated more than Paul the than Saul of Tarsus hated people. 
He breathed hatred and threats and violence against the church. And now, and we've seen it multiple times, people are doing violence to him. He's being completely wronged. Everything that's happening to him is illegal and unjust and unrighteous and unfair. And he says, I just love these people. I would love to talk to them a little bit more. How do you take a a terrorist like Saul of Tarsus, who hates everybody who's not exactly like him and makes good on it, kills people for not being like him? How do you take that guy and transform him into this guy that we're seeing? It's the love of God shed abroad in the hearts of his people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just the work that he wants to do in the Apostle Paul. That same love is shed abroad in our hearts by the same Holy Spirit who's been given to us as well. And so if we are not growing in love towards those around us, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, but towards our enemies as well, then we, are, we have set up some sort of barrier between the Holy Spirit and the work he wants to do in our hearts. Verse 37 continues, he replied, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Throughout the proceedings here, we notice that the unbelieving world, sort of represented by the commander in this moment, keeps making assumptions about Paul. And that's gonna be our experience oftentimes too. They assumed Paul was the guilty one. They assumed he was some uneducated rabble rouser. None of it was true, but they assumed it all the same. And it changed the way that they acted toward Paul. Now, people are gonna assume things about you as a Christian today based off of things they've heard or stories that have been told or bad examples of Christian leadership in the wider culture, those sorts of things. The things that are assumed about you as a Christian are often going to be unfair, negative, unflattering. Okay, surprise people with grace and compassion and thoughtfulness. Surprise them uh, with love and with well-thought-out answers to difficult questions. Now, Josephus records that there had been this Egyptian Jew who led a revolt in Jerusalem, and at one point, he took a bunch of his followers out onto the Mount of Olives, and he said, I'm going to cause the walls of this city to crumble, at which point, Governor Felix, who we're gonna meet in a little while, he sent in soldiers and wiped all those people out. Now, the Egyptian himself escaped, and so the commander thought Paul was that guy. The comparison is interesting though, because we often do think of ourselves as part of a revolution, right? But unlike this Egyptian terrorist, our revolution is not based on division or brutality or force. We're not dagger carriers. That's what the assassins referenced here are, the dagger carriers who would go into crowds and just snipe people, stab them, and then run away. We carry good news. Our revolution is based off of biblical truth, based off of kindness and selflessness. Our mission is never to tear down, but to build up. And so let's remember our marching orders as we go out. Verse 39, Paul said, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. And now I ask you, let me speak to the people. Paul isn't interested in preaching to the soldiers yet. And he's going to, but not yet. It's interesting. He says, can I say something to you? I want to talk to those people. I think think that's kind of interesting. He's going to get there, but for now we see Paul prioritizing and we see him playing this advantage card about the city he's from and all of that. He's not doing it to toot his own horn or make himself seem important. He's simply using it as a way to get in front of this one audience before it's too late and they disperse. The soldiers, they're going to be in the barracks an hour from now right? This crowd of Jewish pilgrims, he's got one shot to talk to them. And so he prioritizes well. 
So as opposition comes hard against Paul, we see him enduring, we see him loving, we see him keeping his wits about himself. And we also see something else. One commentator calls it daring. Paul was daring. His main goal wasn't to just get through the situation or even win his own freedom. His main goal was to win souls for heaven. And toward that end, he actually put off his own safety in hopes that some might be saved. We want to be daring. Paul was heroic in his willingness to take leaps of faith. We think of a leap of faith of doing something almost foolhardy, but that's not what leaps of faith in the Bible are. Paul saw this real opportunity. He knew the power of God was in him. He had a, cultivated a love towards others in his life. And so he took a leap and he said, I can wait to be safe. I wanna be daring and have this one chance to talk to this one crowd one more time. We want God to give us a faith like that. Verse 40, after he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great hush and he addressed them in Aramaic. Your translation may say Hebrew there at the end. Scholars say the text, you know, in, in the original languages say he addressed them in the Hebrew dialect, which would have been Aramaic at the time. We see one more dose of providence here. God gave Paul inexplicable favor with the commander and then supernaturally drew the attention of an angry mob onto one man in a moment. A great hush fell over the crowd. Even during injustice and persecution, God clearly was fighting on behalf of his servant. Sudden deliverance was not going to arrive for Paul. Sudden revival was not going to break out. We know what happens at the end of this story, but God had not failed. God was not asleep on the job and Paul was not disheartened. The work continued. So the world may come against us as Christians. It may blame us, misunderstand us, accuse us of things that aren't true, assume the worst of us. That's all to be expected. And it's okay because we can show them the truth by our love and our grace. And whether we win in the human courts of opinion or the human courts of law or not, we can be sure that God is still on our side. He's still on the move. He's still sending us out in power to do what we can to rescue those who are trapped by the devil. One day, every injustice is going to be made right. Until then, we proceed as we always do, rain or shine, light or dark, no matter what.